And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies in association with Catholic Answers, which can be found online at catholic.com. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature to history to art, philosophy and science, as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Welcome to Deep Down Things. I'm Dave Devil, professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas and editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. With me, as always, is my co-host, award-winning writer, speaker, jazz singer, and pretty much everything else. Most importantly, she is the managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, Liz Kelly. Hello. Hello, Dave. Good morning. Good morning. We have a great guest this morning, one who's a friend of both Liz and me, uh, Deborah Savage, who is most recently professor of philosophy at the St. Paul School of Divinity. She's going to be moving on to a new position. I'll let her talk about that. But Deborah is an experienced business leader for many years, uh, who then went to Marquette University and got a PhD. She has been an expert in many things having to do with uh, the philosophy, particularly of man and woman. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Deborah, why don't you tell us a little bit more about, about your own background and how you came to think about these questions, as well as maybe indicating what your new position is? Oh, sure. So I'll try not to take too long. <laughs> I've been at this since I was 18, and there's a lot of uh, twists and turns. But I started out in manufacturing. I put myself through college working in a factory, actually, out in California, and graduated with a degree in business. Um, and I went on to various jobs in uh, business organizations, starting with production supervisor and all the way up to, you know, upper sort of lower up management positions. I worked at Honeywell and uh, advanced micro devices, places like that. Then at a certain point in my, in my trajectory, I became a expert, so to speak, in quality management, which is what the Japanese were good at and what we were and why they were, were selling more Toyotas than Fords during <laughs> the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And anyways, I, Sort of that became my area. I ended up opening my own consulting firm, which I had for 10 years and worked with clients trying to help them um, sort of utilize those methodologies. And in that process, I learned that the Japanese had succeeded at those methodologies to some extent anyway, because of the spiritual traditions that undergird their culture, Mm. particularly Confucian virtue ethics. Yeah. And I, I was having such a hard time convincing my clients to acquire what I now understand to be the virtues needed to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, that I started to really think about that and wonder why it was that the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, had not and was not informing our work behavior in the same way. Mm -hmm. Because in Japan or in a a Confucian-based culture, there's no fragmentation, really. I mean, this is morphed some, of course, the Chinese experience and so on, but the, um, or the, chi- the experience in China, I should say. 
so it's gotten a little murky. But the um, the point is that in the in the West, we kind of some of us anyway go to church on Sunday and work on Monday, and there's a big gap. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a Confucian-based culture, there are five fiduciary relationships. Anyway, some of the things that I learned, I wasn't able to figure out what had happened in the Judeo-Christian tradition, where where the gap was or at some, what had happened. Was it historical? Was it theological? Was there something missing from the tradition? What was it? And so that was what drove me to go to graduate school. I really needed to find out. It was such a mystery to me. I was making tons of money, getting <laughs> nowhere, helping these people or trying to. <laughs> and I would be done with my job, I, my, with my project. I'd leave and I'd come back and it would Nothing would have stuck, you know. It was mm. just really stupid. So anyway, that's that's how I, I went to ended up in graduate school to try to find out yeah. what had happened. Now, did that and, uh, did that lead you those questions of work? Did those lead you to uh, the questions of male and female, or how how did well, you make that transition? I, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, so my first research direction was really around this question of faith and work. Theology and business, Catholic social thought. I was a, my first published article was on the question: Is creating wealth a virtue, for example? And I, my dissertation was on the subjective dimension of human work, the conversion of the acting person. I was interested in how people became converted through the work that they do in life. And of course, JP two was very instrumental in helping me with that. But as time went on, um, I I guess it, I'd have to say it. I can't tell you how it happened. In a way, I'd always been interested in in for myself and what it might mean to be a a real woman and mm-hmm. a real Catholic woman. That was a big question for me. What did that mean? I could see because I've been in so many different contexts, especially in corporations, that women had a, a propensity. Uh, to make different sorts of contributions, of course, we all know this, that they'd be more concerned about persons and lived experience and things of that sort. And I, again and again in the corporate world, I would have this experience of advising the men I worked with, and I was usually the only woman, that, you know, you haven't really thought of everything, what about this? And they would say, just don't worry about that, Deborah. that's too complicated, let's just get busy. <laughs> and then then they then it'd all blow up, and we'd have to go back and redo it along the lines I had suggested to begin with. Yeah. And eventually, they asked me about it. And, or they'd start, instead of ignoring me, they'd say, well, Deborah, what do you think? That took like 10 years. Sure. <laughs> so. So I, I was really curious about that. And, um, of course, anybody who studies John Paul II is going to end up looking at uh, that issue as it surfaces in his encyclicals. Moliere's Dignitatum comes to mind, which is really an apostolic letter. But mm-hmm. but anyway, so uh, and then, then a priest said to me, why are you spending all your time on economics? You should really be doing this. He said that yeah. to me in spiritual direction. And I guess maybe that's what happened. But. I started to think for some reason about Genesis 1 and 2, and I developed a theory or or sort of a line of thinking about what was really going on there in that account. And then it turned out that John Paul II was also following a similar thread in the theology of the body. He declares there that the first account is about man in the abstract and the second account about man in the subjective sense, which was very similar to what I had been thinking. 
but he didn't develop that theory much in the theology of the body. He kind of says at a certain point that he's not not planning on it. Metaphysical anthropology wasn't his big concern. And I thought, well, that's fine. I'll do it. (laughs) And we're so glad you did. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's been been so illuminating and wonderful. It's actually improved my marriage. Yeah. (laughs) Because I ended up, of course, looking at the science and the psychology and Mm -hmm. uh, looking at that through a lens of both philosophy, Hebraic anthropology, and scripture. You know, and so it's been very fruitful. Some people may realize Francis, Pope Francis is called for theology of women. I think that's a really bad idea. I think what we need is a theology that includes uh, a grasp, uh, sort of a robust account of the nature of woman and man, both as completely human beings on their own right, but then also as they complement each other, both in marriage, in the home, and in the world, in the church. Uh, John Paul says that it, complementarity is what gives us our mission, which is to create not only human families, but human history. Hmm. Give us a rundown of your basic understanding of complementarity. You developed it partly in, in an article for us and in many subsequent articles. Um, what, you know, what, because people hear this, well, complementary, what, in what sense? Like men open pickle jars and women can tell you... <laughs> tell you what, to, you know, I mean, people, t- people tend to see yeah. it in these sorts of ways, but it's something yeah. much deeper that you've gotten from looking at Genesis and yeah. looking at this oh, yeah. tradition. Right. That's right. So uh, I think you're kind of asking what, about what I refer to as the masculine genius and the feminine genius, um, be- because they, I'm arguing that they do have different charisms. Hmm. And it, charisms might be a better word. I'm not sure what yeah. John Paul I think John Paul uses the word genius to describe women. Well, and how would you define charism? A gift given by God that is mine that I need to exercise in order to fulfill my mission on earth. Yeah. And um, so there's there's some uh, important things to say before I launch into what I think that is. The science reveals that men and women are both... um, uh, we're all we're made of the same DNA. 99, 90, 98, 99% of the, our DNA is the same. Mm-hmm. And so it shouldn't surprise anyone that men and women both have these capacities that we would refer to as basically human. And uh, what I would argue Genesis reveals is that men and women are both instantiations of the same substantial form, which is how the philosophers would put it, but what it basically means is we're both equally human. Yeah. So we, we can, women can be accountants and men can be nurses. It's not about the division of labor. But if you look further at Genesis, what you realize is that the order of creation described in Genesis 2 reveals two different places. Man occupies a pride of place with regard to the created order in a certain way and woman in a slightly different way. And so from those starting places, I have derived this um, understanding of both the, the charism given to man, that given to woman. Let me ask you this, and maybe that's a way of then getting further into it, is Edith Stein has, has an essay in her uh, writings on women in which she, she talks about this in a, in a kind of similar way. And I want to maybe get your your take on this. She says that both man and woman 
are both uh, basically responsible for for bringing life into the world and caring for life, but also exercising dominion or stewardship over the created order. And she sure. says for for men and women, the the kind of the ordering of this is reversed. Men are kind of masters and uh, dominion keepers first and fathers second, whereas women are mothers first and then masters or dominion keepers second. Um, mm-hmm. Does that does that fit with your thought or how does yours differ from that? I, I think that's a little reductionist. I I think it's pretty clear that man and woman were given dominion together yeah. over creation, period. I don't think there's any way to parse that. I think that's... sure. Clear from Genesis one, I would say they both what what my what the way I would put it anyway. I realize Edith Stein is a saint, and so we <laughs> need to right. pay attention to her. I'm still working on that. I think it might be more precise to say that we are given both given dominion over it, but we occupy, uh, in, in a certain sense, um, different places in that dominion. Okay. So, what I derive from uh, Genesis two. It starts with where man is in that account. He's the Hebrew. The Hebrew author would have meant us to understand that man is created first. But within that context, the Hebraic author would also have understood that that contained within man is also Eve. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the Hebraic understanding of the soul. So the one and the many is a fundamental uh, concept principle of Hebraic anthropology. Man appears, but contained within man is the whole human community. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's always controversial to people. How could he be first? Weren't they, you know, doesn't that make him better? No. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, so that's the first thing. But you have to read the scripture carefully because what's really true is he's in the garden with God for some amount of time, for some time, yes, alone. And what is he doing? He's naming everything. God is bringing things to him, and he's giving them names. And, of course, as we know, at a certain point, they both realize, oh, somehow something's still missing. And that's when a uh, woman is, is, is created or built, if you will, out of Adam's rib. So uh, my argument would be that, and it's actually found in Aquinas in a way, who said, let's just say that first, that Adam would have had to have been given a distinct preternatural gift for him to be able to do that. And my argument is that man sees into the creation of things in such a way that it reveals its um, both its goodness and its utility to mm-hmm. him. And if you think about it throughout history, it's not that women couldn't have, but men were the ones who looked at creation and said, I know what I can use that for. I know what I can do with that. And it, it seems to me that this is at least the beginning of, an, of a scriptural uh, explanation for why it is that we know that men are more oriented toward objects, toward hmm. things. And, of course, they get vilified for that, but my argument is that that's their gift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the fall... It, it gets kind of, the purpose gets lost, and, and man, from that point on, thinks of everything as an object over which he must take dominion, including woman. Yeah. And that's another story. So that's, a, that's it, the real toxic masculinity. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a if there is yeah ex- exactly, and that sort of takes in some for some men that becomes more apparent. But most of our fathers and our sons and our husbands are real heroes going to work every day sacrificing their whole lives for their yes yeah Mm -hmm. and i say that if it weren't for men we'd still be living in caves afraid to come out (laughs) yeah so um you know there's more to it though that it's not just boys like little trucks and men like big trucks what this this charism results in is the man's capacity to declare what can be predicated of something and what not and, and to create systems and criteria by which those sorts of decisions can be made, yeah. which, by the way, has led to systems of theology and philosophy and law. It's even gone mm-hmm. so far as definitely some guy invented those little baseball cards where you track the statistics of each and every batter and every time there's an error. You know, they, if you go to a baseball game, there's some guy sitting next to you who's writing things down on one of those cards. Yeah, uh, That's a guy thing. My yeah. husband's box of tools. He has a million different types of screwdrivers, and you'd better not mess it up. Yeah. You know, so this, this is actually man's gift, and um, it needs to be recognized as such. It's not the whole story, maybe, but it is certainly a part of the story, and I say that's derivable from Scripture. It's clear that this is what God has mm-hmm. asked man to do. So woman is created, as you might say, people generally have concluded, and there's some historical reasons for this, that woman is created second. But if you read that second account carefully, at least especially if you read both one and two together, Genesis one and two together, what you see is actually there's an order of creation that can only lead to the conclusion that woman is not created second. She's created last mm-hmm. and on the way up. Right. There is a, a sequence of, of, of steps in creation, beginning with lower-ordered creatures, inanimate objects, lower-ordered creatures. Sea monsters are in there somewhere. <laughs> and then there's, then there's man, and then there's woman. Yeah. And woman is created out of Adam's rib, which, which reflects Hebraic anthropology in some really beautiful ways. She issues from the, the unity that pre-existed in Adam, and their union becomes physically and ontologically complete in that, in her creation, which is why man doesn't really know who he is until woman appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with woman's appearance, human community enters the scene for the first time in human history. Without man, woman has no place. But without woman, man has no future. Yeah. And so if you see this uh, incredible vision of man and woman appearing right there before our eyes, I know JP2 says that um, the feminine genius is a feature of the fact that all women are meant to be mothers. And I agree with that completely. But I'm saying prior to that, and unencumbered by all the concerns about biological determinism that accompanied his claim prior to that moment prior to eve becoming the mother of abel and cain cain and abel was was um revealed her place in the order of creation and in that moment man man knows who he is he says oh at last this is bone of my bones flesh of my flesh 
And I know Leon Cass says it was in that moment that uh, that woman uh, helped Adam become conscious of God. I don't really think that you the a true reading of the text allows you to actually say that definitively. Yeah. I think what Cass might be onto is really important though, because Adam didn't really understand anything of what was going on, what was all it was all for, right? Who God really was until woman appears, and then suddenly everything is clear. Oh, I'm supposed to love this person. She's a person like me. I'm supposed to make of myself a gift to her. Yeah, and with her. We will take on this commandment to be fruitful and multiply. It's not until that moment right. that God's plan is clear. So it's to me, I think I think it's a very life fulfilling or life yeah. affirming uh way of looking at it. And um it's at least plausible. <laughs> and from from everything I've been yeah. told by Hebrew uh, scripture scholars and so on, all the people I've consulted with the theory has legs. And so I think it's so helpful to look at it that way because it sort of settles a number of problems that seem to plague us continually, you know, men and women still fighting yeah. with each other. But of course, that's because of original sin. Yeah. And the what happens in Genesis 3, which we might want to talk about too, actually only uh, serves to validate the theory because the gift they both have is turned upside down. Yeah. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits, Catholic intellectual exploration, or career preparation. Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Could you say a word for a moment, though, Deborah, about a very controversial term that's often used in biblical translation, that, that Eve is a helpmeet or a helper? Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. you, ha you have some more helpful language about that in, in yeah. some of your work. Yeah, that's right. That's very important. Um, the words used to describe Eve, uh, you know, that God uses to describe her are azer, konegdo. So he says, let, I, let, I'm going to make you a helper or a helpmate or whatever. And it's azer konegdo. So both words are important. Azer does not mean scullery maid. Right. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean someone who does the dishes. Mm -hmm. Azer, when it's used elsewhere in scripture, means divine aid. Yeah. Woman is help sent by God to help man to live. And then konegdo is a preposition meaning in front of in the spatial sense. And so, you know, there's a tendency, even among faithful Catholic women, to think of this feminine genius thing as an indication that women are superior. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You know, some days it feels that way, but not every day. <laughs> and then uh, also when, in this theory that I have that she's not created second, but created last, and on the way up, people say, oh, you must be saying that too. No, 
It's Azerkanegdo. She's last in the order of creation. So she's not created second and therefore inferior. She's created last. And there's a movement up back back toward God. Yeah. And woman reveals that. And um yet in this if a strict understanding of what the sacred author said is that she's actually face to face. Yeah. With a counterpart man. or uh... a counterpart. Yeah. She's looking straight into his eyes. And they are they are face to face in the order of creation, but both occupying pride of place in somewhat distinct ways in that order. And a, a further wrinkle on understanding woman, um, she man has has been in the garden with things, with lower ordered creatures, with with God, yes, which has a, marks him forever. But um, so he's his first encounter with reality is one of loneliness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But woman is the first. She's never lived in a created order that wasn't already occupied yes. by persons. And so her first moment of reality is contact with Adam. The things that he's been naming, working so hard to name, are on the periphery of her gaze. Those are secondary to her. She sees man. And that, to me, is the origin of this claim we can easily make from science and everywhere, that woman is more oriented toward persons mm-hmm. because she's never lived in a created order that wasn't already occupied by them. We see that in job choices. Uh, women tend, yeah. tend to be in what are often called the helping professions, yeah. uh, but especially ones that deal with, deal with other people and that interrelatedness. Not that, yeah. not that men can't do that or that men can't, or w- women can't be engineers, but that they have a general tendency toward that. And that, that reflects something of our creation, doesn't it? Oh, that's absolutely right. Adam and Eve don't complete each other in the sense that there's, they both have half a human. No, they're they're fully human, but with different, slightly different missions in the world, or at least different gifts they bring to that mission. So at Honeywell, obviously, what I would be saying is, guys, you're forgetting about the human element. We can't just push this change effort down on people. We have to start with where they are and move that way, et cetera. That was the complicating factor. That's too complicated. And what you learn is that actually to not do it that way only complicates things further. Mm -hmm. And what I argue, especially to young women, is you make your contribution and you don't apologize for it. Yes. Yeah. We need to sort of redefine the bottom line. This, This contribution that you make is actually, in the end, what keeps us all human. Do you, where do you think we are today? Uh, you know, I think for, for many years, there's been a kind of, you know, maybe a tit for tat since we denigrated women for many centuries. Now we have to, to denigrate men. Uh, is, there, is there any sense that people are coming around to thinking more holistically, as you and other scholars have been trying to do, about seeing men and women as complementary and not as enemies or as, uh, yeah. you know, opponents? Well... I want to say, I would love to be able to say, I think that we're on the right, heading in the right direction. I think hidden underneath all the conflict will, uh, because it's hidden underneath all the conflict, at some point we'll go so far down one road that people stop and take a look and say, okay, wait a second, we really messed this up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're at that point yet. And I, I mm-hmm. think uh, there's so many reasons for it, um, but 
just the um, introduction of the term toxic masculinity into the culture is really troubling. Yeah. And then I don't know if your readers or I'm sorry, listeners will have heard about this, but in 2019, the APA, the American Psychological Association, came out with new guidelines for psychologists to help men and boys in therapy in which they name toxic masculinity right, as right. a pathological state. Or actually, I shouldn't even put it that way. What turns out to be really traditional masculinity right. as a pathological state. Oh, boy. You, out, wow. you outline toxic masculinity in some sense as this, uh, you know, abuse of what are men's natural tendencies. And, and there would be, is there, there, they probably didn't include toxic femininity as a problem, did they? Well, no, but it, but it it did morph to that. So yeah. you, if you look up, look it up, you'll find toxic femininity. Yeah, and it's not the strident voices and angry faces and those pink hats that we saw on TV a couple years ago, right? Or was it four now? Um, or the you know this the sort of really angry feminism that's often on display. That's not toxic. No, toxic femininity is when a woman. Uh, tends to sacrifice herself for others. Oh, yeah. You can look that up. I mean, there, yeah. it's written about wow. in the American AP, uh, what do you call it, psychology journals and so on. So it's really a, a, a continued effort to dismantle uh, the natural gifts of men and women. And it's, of course, um, grounded in this new gender theory that divorces our consideration of who man and woman is completely from biology. Um, toxic masculinity, it, it, it can be, you can be educated out of it because it was a social construction to begin sure. with anyway. Or medicated out of it if medicated. that's needed. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's kind of a mess because on the one hand, we're sort of on the, on the road to eliminate girls' sports, right? right? By making it possible for biological men to participate in competitive sports with them on the same basis. But we're also encouraging uh, feminine mastery, or we've, uh, let's say, bought it hook, line, and sinker. What's a very ancient error, Aristotle's claim that women are merely male-formed males. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Meaning that men, the male of the species is normative for the species, and so now women want to be like men because they think that's the only way to be human. Yeah or to, to get the recognition for being human that they feel they deserve. So it's all really misplaced. Yeah. And interestingly enough, more young girls are, are getting confused about their gender and wanting to be boys mm-hmm. than there are boys wanting to be girls. And I think that's actually an indication of the same trajectory. So yeah. I think it's pretty messy right now. But to be honest, what I'm focused on, I mean, a lot of people are writing on gender ideology and trying to um, articulate uh, a, a position that helps counteract the excesses of those claims and puts them to bed and so on. And I, my project is different. What mm. I'm trying to do is um, uh, construct of uh, an account of man and woman, the nature of woman in relation to man, the nature of man in relation to woman, that is scientifically, psychologically, philosophically, and theologically robust. It's really important, and I say this whenever I can, this is not a new wrinkle on feminism. Right. Right. 
got a new answer to the woman question. This is not a girl thing. Right. Mm-hmm. This is an account of man and woman. Mm-hmm. And in my research, what I've had to conclude is there really has never been an adequate account, fully a systematic account that includes both fl- starting with nature yep. and moving on into the more sacred domain yeah. <laughs> uh, that really f- gives a full account of who man and woman might be said to be. And I, that's what I'm working on. Yeah. You, you know, I, uh, I teach John Henry Newman uh, at St. Yeah. Thomas. And yeah. one of Newman's lines that I always emphasize to them is in a letter where he talks about some of his ideas originally were rejected. And he says, you know, it's hard to be out of joint with the times. Yes. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, in God's providence is everything. And it may be the case that you know, 50 or 100 years from now, somebody will say, I had a good idea, and they will pick it up. And I, I, I certainly hope that it's not 50 to 100 years till uh, your ideas and those <laughs> of the people working in your field are picked up. But nevertheless, I think it's, it's a hopeful thing. And it's a good yeah. place to end uh, by asking you, where else can we learn about your work and those of the people that you're collaborating with to actually build up this theory? Yeah, of course. So one thing I can say with some pride is that a book has, I mentioned it earlier, has just come out that I can't claim authorship for, but I have a chapter in it. Yeah. And it's the title is The Complementarity of Women and Men, edited by Paul Vitz, V-I-T-Z, yeah. from CUA, Catholic University of America Press. And that book includes chapters on the science from philosophy and my own uh, theo- more philosophical and theological account that I've just been describing. And art as well. I saw Liz and Lev's art. name in there. Elizabeth mm-hmm. Lev has done incredible work, of course, as many of us know, on, all, on, on um, art uh, of all sorts. But what she does is show how complementarity is actually featured in much of the medieval art, especially of, um, you know, a number of people, Michelangelo and others. Um, so it's, this is not an unknown theme, right, in, mm-hmm. uh, in the Catholic intellectual tradition, which includes its artistic sensibilities. And in a way, what Dr. Vitz has done, I'm not sure he's made it explicit even to himself, but what, we, what that book contains is the true, the good, and the beautiful. Yeah. Nice, yeah. And so uh, we forget about the transcendental of beauty, mm-hmm. but it also speaks to us of the truth and goodness of God, just like truth and goodness speak to us of beauty. They're, they sort of all sort of fent for each other in various times. And so you can learn a lot by looking at the artwork. Uh, sometimes one of the things to watch out for in this investigation is any kind of attempt to reduce man and woman to particular roles or jobs or that sort of right. thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You're going to gravitate toward those things anyway, but uh, it's, so it's a kind of tricky to articulate yes. um, yeah. these distinctions without getting in trouble or going too far. And where I'm headed with this is to point out that you can get a feel for it by looking at the art. It's, well, sort of inchoate, it's not really spoken in in concepts then it's, yeah. it's, it's I think that's out. one of the great strengths of the works that he collected in that yeah. book because you do come at the question from so many angles and mm-hmm. uh to use the word you used earlier you get a much more robust picture mm-hmm. uh by looking at the m- multiple disciplines and uh multiple visions mm-hmm. 
uh, trying to answer this same question of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, yeah, yeah. and how we uh, work in mission together. Yeah. What, say a little bit about where you're going now. We said you're moving on to a new position. I'm not sure we actually yeah. mentioned where uh, and where people can follow you. Yeah, I've, I've accepted a full-time faculty position at the uh, um, Franciscan University of Steubenville. So I'll be moving down there and beginning my work there in next semester in, in the fall. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so I'll, I don't know, that's sort of the whole story. I'm going to teach, um, you know, undergraduates again for the first time. I've been teaching in this seminary for 13 years, mostly philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm going to return to my, my actual field of expertise, which is more the- theology. And um, I'll get to teach courses in woman and man, and also on faith and work again. They're going to yeah, ask nice. me mm-hmm. to reconstruct a course I used to teach on the Christian faith and the management profession, and and things of that sort. And then they're opening up a John Paul II Institute, and I hope to contribute to that. Well, they're darn lucky to have you, and um, uh, we wish you so well in that endeavor. And that you'll keep Logos in mind as you continue to work. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in fact, I think um, what, there's two things I would mention. Um, I wrote an article called Redeeming Woman, um, a, res- a response to the same uh, second sex issue mm. from within the Catholic exegetical tradition. It's a really ungainly title, but if they just look for Redeeming Woman, um, that um, is a a full account of what Aristotle did and what my recommendations are for recovering from that. And um, I just, um, that article came out recently. So it's something in addition to what um, the book contains, uh, that article. We can definitely put that in the show notes. So Okay. Okay. And then I just gave this talk on the feminine principle and the divine plan. And I'm planning to publish on that too, but the work continues. I mean, there's um, much more to be said about the role of woman in the world. Um, Once you have the basic anthropology down, then the task is to consider its implications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we really haven't done enough to to understand what complementarity means outside the family unit. It's pretty clear to see in the family. Not so much in the workplace or politics or mm-hmm. right. places mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Well, you've given us a fantastic start on thinking about these things in a new way that's not reactive but constructive. And beautifully articulated. And beautifully yeah. articulated. Oh, good. Thank you. So thank you, Deborah, for being with us today. We'll look forward to your work from now on. And Liz, thank you as always for being here. My pleasure. And we thank you, the listeners of Deep Down Things. We hope that you'll continue to listen to us, pass on our podcast to others, and take a look at our main site, patreon.com backslash deep down things. God bless. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.